Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, Buzz Killers. It's the professor here. And thank goodness that it's not just me. We have with us on the line Dr. Matthew Delmont, who is the Sherman Fairchild Distinguished Professor of History at Dartmouth, and he's written many, many books about American history. He's an extremely important historian, and he's here to talk to us about his new book, which is just out, available, of course, on the Buzzkill bookshelf, Half American, the Epic Story of African Americans Fighting World War II at Home and Abroad. Dr. Delmont, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is such an important book because, you know, when I, when I used to teach, I would tell my students all the time that there's this sort of parallel thing going on. We have this idea of a good war, but for an awful lot of Americans, this was not a good war. The, the treatment of African Americans especially, and of course the treatment of a lot of other groups, was really below what we see presented in the movies and everything else. What brought you to the point of saying, look, I've got to sit down and write this book now? Because, of course, you're well along in your career, and you've written a lot about uh, African Americans in the media and things like that. Why World War II? So I started this book about seven years ago, and it actually emerged out of my last book project, which is a project called yeah. Black Quotidian, where I was looking at mm -hmm. uh, African American newspapers, historical newspapers, just to try to get a sense of what different communities across the country were reading about and talking about on a day-to-day -day basis. And when I was looking at newspapers from the 1940s, papers like the Chicago Defender, the Cleveland Call and Post, Pittsburgh Courier, I kept coming across these profiles of black men and women who volunteered or were drafted into the military. Mm -hmm. And these were just small snapshot photos and little write-ups of uh, average people from, from these local communities. At first, I came across a dozen of them and then eventually hundreds of them. Yeah. And I was really just kind of blown away by how many of those stories were there. Mm -hmm. um, like you, I mean, I'm a teacher, I'm a historian, I've taught about the history of World War II for, for more than a decade, but seeing how many of these stories, seeing how many of these, these pictures were there, it surprised me because these were not the kind of things I was used to seeing in our history textbooks. And so that made me curious. And right. that curiosity eventually led me to, to do the research that resulted in, in this book. And we should remind the buzzkillers that, you know, these newspapers you're talking about were a major deal. They were read, they... Again, it's sort of this parallel society thing. We think of the, the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune and everything, but these African-American newspapers earlier in, this, in the 20th century were, were, had huge circulations and went read by everybody, everybody in the African-American community anyway. Exactly. And, and why these are so important as sources for historians is you get an entirely different perspective on what the war is exactly. about. Exactly. If you pick up 
the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, it shows you one set of things, which are, are all true on, on their own basis, but they largely ignore the thousands yeah. and thousands of black people who are living in New York and Chicago. That It's not until you turn to the New York Amsterdam News or, or Chicago Defender that you get a sense of the enormous black communities that were in, in those cities, but also what the war looked like from, from their perspective. Yeah, and again, it's not like these are fringe newspapers read by 10 college students in town. These are hugely popular. You start off the book with a letter from a man named James Grants Thompson to the Pittsburgh Courier. And the Pittsburgh Courier was one of the big African-American newspapers at the time. And the letter is very, very shocking. Can you take the buzz killers through it and explain it? And especially, uh, I was so struck by how direct it was and how forcefully it was written. This is right in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. Exactly. So this is James Thompson was a 26-year-old from Wichita, Kansas. And he sits down to write this letter in December of 1941, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, because he knows that he and other black Americans are about to be drafted into the military. Right. And at that time, the entire military is segregated. And so mm-hmm. he's left to wonder, what does it mean to be drafted into into the segregated military? And the letter, the letter he writes to the Pittsburgh Courier asks a series of very pointed and pressing questions. He says, should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Mm-hmm. Is the America I know worth defending? And he goes on in this way for for a paragraph. And those words stuck with me. Should I sacrifice my life to live half American? And it's why I, I t- end up titling the book Half American. Mm-hmm. Because I think what he was pointing to was something that every black American was was asking themselves at that time. They recognized that World War II was likely a war that had to be fought. They, they knew that Nazi Germany was a, a, a terrible threat, not only to Europe, but to um, to the entire world. But at the same time, they're forced to, to wrestle with this question of what does it mean to fight for a country that doesn't treat you as a full citizen that, that treats you as as half American. The Pittsburgh Courier ends up using Thompson's letter to launch what they call the double victory campaign, yes, yes. which becomes the rallying cry for black Americans during the war. They're, they're fighting for victory over fascism abroad and victory over racism, racism at home. Mm-hmm. And so I think Thompson's letter is this amazing window that opens up so much of what was on the minds of everyday black Americans at, at the start of the war. Yeah, then the double victory campaign becomes a very big campaign. It's not, again, it, these things are not fringe movements. This is a, a massive percentage of the country. Uh, it's interesting that you start with that in the book, but also in chapter two, you address this question, and I don't want to go through all the chapters in the book, because of course we want the buzzkillers to get a copy, but also because there's so much here. This is a very rich and full history. Anyway, chapter two is entitled Fighting for the Chance to Fight. And this is a real eye-opener for my students. What did that mean at the time? And what did African-American people have to do to fight for the chance to fight? Taking a step back, Black Americans have been part of the military in in every conflict the United States has ever been part of, going all the way back to the American Revolution. More than 300,000 Black Americans served during World War I. But what happens between World War I and World War II is the military does almost everything they can to push Black Americans out of the service. They institute policies in terms of segregation that make sure that Black Americans are assigned to the, the most menial tasks within within the armed forces. Right. And then there are a series of reports that get published, uh, particularly by the Army War College. There's one from 1925 that's particularly kind of horrendous, where they openly disparage the intelligence, bravery, and courage of, of Black Americans to, to argue that they have no role to play in the military and that they can't be military leaders. And so in those years between World War One and World War Two, the percentage of Black Americans in the armed forces declines dramatically. It's much smaller than the total percentage of, of Black Americans in the population. So in the lead up to World War II, once it becomes clear that eventually America is going to be part of this, this war effort, civil rights activists and Black newspaper editors band together to start pressuring the White House and start pressuring military officials 
to give black Americans the opportunity to serve in the Army, Navy, and, and the Marine Corps. And they do that for a couple of reasons. One, they recognize that American identity and belonging has often been linked to military service. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they see if the United States goes into World War II and black Americans aren't given the opportunity to serve, that's only going to be detrimental to the larger case that black Americans are making for, for full citizenship. But also there are real material benefits that come from military service. The kind of payment that soldiers and sailors would receive was, was substantial. And the kind of training they receive in military service was all taxpayer funded, but that training would then open up job opportunities after one leaves the service. And so it becomes a really important thing for civil rights activists and newspaper editors to, to push for this. But it, it seems so paradoxical, I think, to people who don't know this history very well, that just before Pearl Harbor, the first thing black Americans have to do is actually fight for the opportunity to fight for their country. Right, right, right. That's the first battle they have to win is just getting their their foot in the door to be able to serve in the armed forces. And by the way, as all this is happening in the the late 30s, as you point out in the first chapter in your book, African-Americans are fighting in the Spanish Civil War. So, I mean, it's it's clear that there there isn't some sort of disability among African-Americans to to fight in wars if they're taking part in the fight against fascism before the rest of the United States is. Exactly. And, And it's, One of the reasons I start the book with that chapter on the Spanish Civil War is because if you look at a black newspaper from the 1930s, you would see extensive coverage of the rise of fascism in Europe. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Black newspapers, black Americans were among the first to recognize the really significant threat that Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime posed because they understood that Hitler was pointing to American racial policies to help justify his treatment of Jews in Europe and how closely that resembled the way that black Americans were being treated, particularly in the U.S. South. They report on Hitler, they report on the rise of Mussolini in Italy and then the rise of General Franco in in Spain. And it's that Spanish Civil War where you have more than 80 black Americans who volunteer to join uh, the the Republican side and and to fight in the Spanish Civil War against these fascist forces. Langston Hughes, the famous poet, uh, becomes a war correspondent for the Baltimore African-American. He travels to Spain and is reporting on these black volunteers who who are fighting fascism. And one of the reasons those stories that Hughes writes resonate so powerfully with black Americans is because these volunteers in the Spanish Civil War, they're serving in combat roles that they couldn't take on in the American military at the same time. And they're serving in integrated units. They're fighting alongside Irishmen and Englishmen and and white Americans. And and they're doing well in that integrated service. And they're doing that at the same time that the American military is fully segregated. And so Spanish Civil War presents a vision or a possibility of what the American military could be, how it could actually take advantage of the of the manpower or people power of black citizens if only they're willing to get past racial prejudice. Now, is this being deliberately ignored by the by the military brass? Or is it something more complicated? Is it, well, these are all just a bunch of lefties going off to fight the fascists? We're, you know, we can't rely on African-Americans as a whole to become American soldiers. That latter point is really important, that for military officials and a lot of politicians in Washington, D.C., the leftist politics that lead a lot of those volunteers to go fight mm-hmm. in, in Spain is those politics are extremely suspicious. And so they they take any, um, any combat victories there with a, a huge grain of salt. Although a, a number of those hundreds of those volunteers, both black and white volunteers from what were called the Abraham Lincoln Brigades, go on to serve in World War II. Yeah. And so they are among the first to fight fascism in Spain, and then they continue that fight during during the war itself. More broadly, the military, it's just so ingrained in the military's thinking in the 1930s that the black Americans don't have the capacities to be good soldiers or good officers. But also, I think they, they do recognize that for a lot of the white troops who are in, in the military, they would be very upset at the idea of having a racially integrated service. Right. And so I think that, that's why it, the, the military isn't 
integrated before the start of the war. Yeah. Okay. Well, then what do, sorry, I skipped back a little bit to go to the, the Spanish Civil War, but it seems amazing to me that, that they're obviously proving this stuff on the ground and it's not being paid, uh, no, no, not enough attention to it's being paid at home. So what do African-Americans do to try to, what are the sort of the specific things they do in fighting to get to fight? So they protest, protest, and protest. <laughs> okay. Um, all, all sorts of different creative means. There are sort of the traditional letter campaigns, mm -hmm. there are uh, public pickets. But then the largest thing in the lead up to the United States officially entering World War II is A. Philip Randolph, the famous uh, labor leader. He's the right. head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the most important and largest black union in the country. Yeah, we did a Man Crush he Monday show on him a few years ago. Oh, nice. He threatens to lead a march on Washington mm -hmm. in the summer of, of 1941. He issues this, this call in March of 1941. He says he's going to bring 100,000 black Americans to march on Washington, D.C. unless President Roosevelt in the White House desegregate the military and unless they pass non-discrimination policies for the war industries for these massive defense industries that are going to produce so many jobs. Right, right. And that, that becomes a national campaign. So Randolph is the, the figurehead. He's the most vocal leader about it, but he's traveling around the country and working with uh, essentially regional captains to organize people to form March on Washington chapters all across the country. This receives a huge amount of coverage in the black press because it's a very bold and controversial idea that oh sure that Randolph would lead lead this this protest march which he knows is going to be a, a huge embarrassment for for President Roosevelt Randolph's eventually able to get himself into the White House to have kind of high stakes negotiations with the president initially Roosevelt is very resistant to offer anything because he thinks if I give this to, to Randolph and black Americans everyone who has any sort of complaints is going to come in and demand something yeah but eventually after some some back and forth. Roosevelt agrees to sign an executive order that does pass non-discrimination provisions for the defense industries. It doesn't do anything to desegregate the military. That's deemed to be too controversial. And so he puts that to the side during the war. But he does pass an executive order to try to make sure there's not going to be discrimination in the war industries. Okay, now this is important. And, this make, and there's a lot of discussion of this in your book. The war industries are what? Before America officially joins the war militarily after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt announces that the United States will be the arsenal of democracy, right. that they're going to produce the, the thousands and thousands of planes and trucks and tanks and ammunition and bombs that the allies are going to need to win the war. That means jobs. Mm -hmm. It means that factories all over the country are being converted from producing whatever they did previously to now producing war goods. By and large, because of union policies and because of local racial prejudice, black Americans aren't getting access to those jobs in the same way that, that white Americans were. Mm -hmm. And so those defense industries, they start to ramp up even before 1941, and they continue throughout the war. And it becomes, on the home front, a set of key battlegrounds over who's actually going to benefit from this huge economic boom that's produced by, by World War II. Right. And, and they are some of the best jobs around to get. They're better than some of the other pre-war factory jobs. Exactly. They're good jobs to get both because of the pay, but also because of the respect that comes yeah. from working in these war industries that everyone recognizes is important. And within each of the factories, there are different levels to the jobs. And so that becomes part of what activists are fighting for as well, that when Black Americans were able to get jobs, it was often uh, just the, the most basic menial level, so cleaning the, the shop floor as opposed to uh, taking on one of the higher level jobs that would both pay more and offer a set of skills that could be used in the future as well. And so it's both access to the, the factories, but then where one is able to work within those factories. Now, I think a lot of our listeners are going to assume that the discrimination within these industries was largely, was different across different regions 
in the country. But I've always been surprised at how extensive the discrimination was almost everywhere. How, how much did you find about, you know, there is no golden land in the north for, for, industrial, for better industrial treatment of African-Americans, it seems to me, or not much of one. That's true. That's true. There are regional, I'd say there are different regional dynamics to how racism and discrimination played out, yeah. but there was no part of the country where black Americans had fully equal access to employment, to housing, to education, or just the ability to live their lives without without harassment. And so some of the sharpest points of conflict around war jobs come up in places like Detroit or in Los Angeles or even yeah. in Seattle, Washington, because the issues that are leading to conflicts are, are the same across regions. It's a set of white workers who believe that they should have the best jobs and unique access to them. And it's a set of black workers who want the opportunity to, to share in these these war benefits. And so those differing perspectives on, on who should benefit from fence industries lead to conflicts regardless of region. And then how? what are the other things besides a Philip Randolph's March on Washington and other rhetorical approaches to opening up war work for African-Americans? Are there other things going on? Are there other threats to, you know, for boycotts in other industries, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to work at our regular jobs until you give us regular access to better jobs in the defense industry or anything like that. Is there a broader based labor reaction in order to improve labor access? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Throughout the war, you do see um, localized protests of black Americans trying to get access to specific factories. So there's protests in St. Louis and in Los Angeles and in Chicago, all with the same set of goals in mind that they want the opportunity to benefit from from this massive ramp up in, in defense industries. And what the challenges is for the way union membership was set up, um, often union membership was segregated as well. And so they would create mm. um, segregated or auxiliary union chapters for, for black workers that were apart from, from white workers. And they'd be, this had been orga- segregated before the war as well. This yep. is not something new because of the war. Yeah, this was, had existed right. before the war. And, uh, it expanded during the war as more black workers moved into this type of work. And was there backlash to this sort of, to, to any sort of change, to the idea of any change? You know, were white workers also threatening to walk out on the job if if black workers were given more rights, more equal rights? They were. And I think these are some of the most frustrating incidents to read about as a historian. Because, again, our, our mythology yeah. about World War II is that the United States came together, despite whatever differences might have been, and to fight a, a common enemy, to, fi- to fight to win the war. But when you look at the historical record, it just isn't the case. No. During the war, there were a number of what they called hate strikes that were organized by white workers. Yeah. These were strikes that were not authorized by the unions, but white workers took it upon themselves to stop working, to walk off the, the factory floor, to protest what they saw as unfair advancements by black workers in, in their factories. These could sometimes be very, very small things. In Baltimore, they're an example, mm-hmm. an example that they desegregated the toilet facilities, and that enraged the white workers who were there, that they walked off the job for a week because they refused to use the same toilets as black workers. When this shows up in the, the black press, it leads people to be furious because it, it suggests that white workers don't care about the war effort in the same way that they are proclaiming to. Because when, when that factory right, exactly when that factory stops, it means that trucks aren't being produced. It means ammunition isn't being produced. It means that the things that the fighting men in the European Pacific theater need to keep fighting this military battle, they might not get there. Right? Americans might actually die because of a lack of supplies because this factory refused to work because white workers couldn't use the same toilet as, as black workers would. It's and it means it, se- it seems to mean that 
to those white workers in Baltimore and probably in lots of other places as well that segregation is more important as a philosophy and ideology than defeating fascism. I think that's absolutely true. One of my favorite quotes from the book, Roy Wilkins, who is one of the leaders of the NAACP, said, Mm -hmm. white white folks would rather lose this war than give up the luxury of race prejudice, which I think is a remarkable thing to say, and it is backed up by the historical record. I think these, these hate strikes protesting the hiring of a couple of black workers in a facility or the, the promotion of a couple of black workers. So many of these white workers across the country held so tightly to the idea of segregation, held so tightly to their belief in a racial hierarchy at which they had to be on top that any disruption to that led them to refuse to do the work that they were meant to be doing to help win the war. And was there any sort of additional prejudice, any additional restriction any additional segregation for African American for female African American workers, you know, African American male workers working in heavy industry are obviously segregated. Is there, you know, a, a, the African American version of Rosie the Riveter? Is she even given a harder time than the African American male line worker? Absolutely, and thanks for asking about that. So, in terms of scale, there are more than a million Black Americans who participated in these defense industry jobs, and of those, mm-hmm. about six hundred thousand were Black women. These were particularly important jobs for, for Black women to take because before the war, the primary job opportunities outside of the home for Black women were either in agriculture or working domestic service for white families. So, one of the, the frequent quotes that came out from these Black Rosie the Riveters was that. It took a war to get them out of white women's kitchens, that this was the thing that actually opened up war industry jobs to them. But in the same way that black women have encountered discrimination in multiple intersecting ways throughout history, during the war, they faced both the kind of racial discrimination that black men did, but they also faced gender-based discrimination, uh, both from white workers, but also from some of the black men who weren't particularly excited about the idea of women taking on what they thought to be men's jobs. And how does does, does this labor dispute in general, how does it play out differently? Uh, I know that it does play out differently in the in the African American press and in the in the in the white press, if you will. But tell the buzzkillers how, for instance, are these hate riots reported in the two different presses? In the white press, they are reported, I'd say, almost matter of factly, as just a, another yeah. example of sort of a labor work stoppage. That these are strikes that are not dissimilar to what would have happened before the war, what would happen after the war. And they're kind of just matter-of-fact reporting where they might quote from some of the workers who are striking and some of the um, federal officials who are trying to bring them back to work and just kind of leave it at that without exploring some of the the undertext or the meanings for why these strikes happened in the first place. Right In the black press, as was the the custom for how black newspapers report on these things, they were much more explicit in, in trying to ask the question of why. Why are these workers striking now? And when they asked the question, the answer they most common, commonly found was they're striking to try to make sure that white supremacy is maintained on the factory floor. There weren't yeah, a lot of absolutely. better a lot of better answers to it. The thing that they were upset about, what these white workers were, were upset about, was either an end to segregation in some part of the facility, the promotion of some small number of black workers to management roles or just the hiring of two or a dozen black workers on, on a night shift. Right. These were not large-scale changes that threatened to take away jobs from from thousands of, of white workers. The white workers still had their jobs. What upset them was that their complete control over the, the racial dynamics of the shop floor were being, were being upset. And so you saw a lot more pointed coverage in, in the black press that, that really got at the the heart of the matter. Yeah, and it also, I think, just shows how deep this racism and belief in segregation is that at a time when 
really Americans should be thinking about other things, that is defeating fascism. They're willing to go on strike because African Americans are using This is just uh, crazy. Well, of course, we know it's crazy. But let's leave that there. Let's leave the, the home front there for a moment, if you will, and talk about the actual, the, the fighting front. That, of course, is also segregated, but it's, well, I, I shouldn't keep talking. I should ask, <laughs> I should let you enlighten the buzz killers about the various ways in which it is segregated and why it's so complicated. The entire armed forces are segregated throughout the world. Right. Within the army, they largely don't allow black troops to participate in combat or infantry units until later in the war. The vast majority of, of black draftees and volunteers are assigned to supply and logistical units where they do a lot of the kind of heavy behind the scenes work to load and unload ships and trucks, drive those trucks, clear jungles, build runways. It's unglamorous work, but it's really vital work to, to the war effort. Mm-hmm. Within the Navy, initially black Men are only allowed to serve as mess attendants in the Navy, where they'll wait on and serve white officers. And at the start of the war, no black Americans are allowed to serve in the Marine Corps in any capacity. That's not until wow. a couple years into the war that the Montford Point Marines actually get started. And it goes down into like every aspect of, of military life, because for the military, segregation means that they're going to segregate the recreation facilities and the barracks and the latrines and the dining facilities. And when you pause to think about it, segregation made no sense strategically. It, there was oh, no yeah, strategic yeah. reason to segregate. It was extraordinarily complicated to do all this redundant planning, both in the U.S., but then also once you send these troops to fight the war, you have to do everything in duplicate. And so it was was costly and inefficient to maintain segregation. It would take away they, from seg- the war effort because it would be harder because you're exactly. doing exactly. I mean, it has to be someone's it has to be someone's job to actually figure out right. and assign black and white troops to different different places and make sure that ever they have all of the separate facilities. It's so bad that they even segregate the blood donations in the yeah, Red Cross, yeah. even, even though there's no scientific basis to segregate segregate that blood. It's extraordinarily frustrating and demeaning to black troops to encounter the segregation yeah. because it means that it, it influences every aspect of, of their life once they're in, in the military. And it influences how both white enlisted men and white officers treat them. And so it's one of the, the, the worst aspects, I think, of, of this history from the US perspective that we were trying to fight the country's trying to fight a war for freedom and democracy with a segregated military. As a historian, how do you find out uh, how this segregation affects the soldiers themselves? Obviously, the book has a great deal of stuff from newspapers and other documents, but were you able to use many diaries, interviews, letters from home, letters to home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so one of the most fun things about being a historian is trying to put all those puzzle yeah. pieces together, to gather as much evidence as you can, and then try to craft everything together in, into a story. And so to get a perspective on what this meant for, for Black troops, oral history interviews were, were hugely important. Right, right. There have been a number of interviews that have been conducted over the last 30 years, um, including by the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And so having a chance to read and listen to those those interviews, to get a perspective on what it meant for these thousands of, of men and women to arrive at these segregated camps and to engage with white enlisted men and white officers, the, the kind of verbal and physical abuse they received, what it meant for them to go into these small southern towns, all that is is described by them in, in their own voices. And so those were a huge part of, of the evidence that I used for, for the book. There also were thousands and thousands of letters that black troops mm-hmm. wrote from, from mm-hmm. all over the country when they were stationed at these bases. Uh, they wrote primarily to the NAACP asking for help for what they were, were dealing with, or, or to black newspapers. And so kind of triangulate among black newspaper coverage of this and the war reporters who they had, the letters that black troops wrote, and then the oral history interviews where they would recall what their experiences were like. It gives you a really clear picture of just how, how bad things got during the war for, for these black servicemen and women. 
did you have a sorry methodological question? Did you happen to find much difference between the evidence in the letters and the memory evidence that people were giving? You know, thirty some odd years later, it's probably too much to ask for you to have. It was probably too much. It would have been too serendipitous to find the letters of somebody, someone, and then actually there was also there were also interviews of someone thirty years later. But in general terms, did they did they mesh? Did they gel? <laughs> They mesh in terms of the overall themes. I think yeah. the, the thing you get from the letters is the sense of urgency. Because it's, right. it's okay. again, it's important to remember, by and large, these are 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds who yeah, might yeah. be away, away from home for the first time. And they find themselves, these are, they'd been civilians two months earlier. They're away from home for the first time on this army base in Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia. And they describe being treated as though they were slaves or dogs by their white officers. Or they describe yeah. going into the local town and being threatened by the white sheriffs or, or seeing one of their, their fellow soldiers being beaten by a white sheriff. Or they describe yeah. having to move to the back of a segregated bus to get back to the back to the post. They were quite literally fearing for their lives on these, these southern bases. And that sense of urgency in the letters they're writing mm -hmm. back to NAACP or to family members, that comes through really clearly. In the oral history interviews, at that point now, they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and mm -hmm. there's a sense of perspective. And I think that's important, too, because for a lot of these Black veterans, they were really reluctant to talk about their war experiences because it, sure. it didn't resonate in the same way with the, the kind of heroic, glorified stories that Americans have tended to tell in, in the last several decades about, about the war. The experiences of Black World War II veterans were very different from that. And as a result, a lot of them didn't feel comfortable describing what, what actually happened. Yeah. But in these oral history interviews, you, you will get a sense of perspective that they they know what they went through and then can see how some of what they start were starting to fight during the war and what they were fighting once they got home was really the the, the foundation for what became the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. there, was a lot, there were a lot more reflections on what this meant in the grand sweep of, of American history and, and making sure that their honest stories of what actually happened don't get lost or swept under the rug in a, a more simplistic telling of the war. And how does the NAACP and how do the and, and presumably other organizations, how do they react to these letters? Because this is this is direct evidence. You can take to to the government and say, look, damn it, we have these soldiers in a in a southern military base and they're being treated like slaves. So one of the characters in the book is Thurgood Marshall, yeah. who's best known as the first black Supreme Court justice. But during the war, he's the head of the legal division for the NAACP. Yeah. And he's traveling all across the country investigating these cases of violence against black troops. And his job is just that. It's to try to make sure that military leaders and politicians are being held to account, that something's actually going to be done to make sure that the treatment for these black troops is is humane that they're not being going to be harassed or threatened or killed on these armor bases the challenge that marshall and, and his other um fellow lawyers and activists in the NWCP face was that the number of these cases was so massive that they felt yeah, like they were yeah. against this huge huge tide and it was even with evidence either official testimony or letters from from troops it was really hard for military officials to to believe that this was actually happening or, or they were very resistant to doing anything about it. They would yeah. say this is just how military culture operates, that everyone has a period of adjustment and you, yeah, you, have, to, well. you, have, to, you have to roll with what your, um, what your officers say you have to do. And so it was a sort of day-to-day -day struggle that Marshall and, and others uh, had to fight to try to make sure that, that things didn't get worse and to try to 
bring some manner of justice to the many, many cases of violence against black troops. And did the, it, was there evidence or were there examples of where violence against the troops or mistreatment against troops, which was then sort of reported to the NAACP, was there any any example of of those those specific instances being redressed? Are there any good stories, good individual stories coming out of this? Out of this, these efforts to 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 right these wrongs. There's not a lot of especially good stories that come out of it because um, it's often a matter of trying to make sure things don't get worse than they could have been. And so I think okay. in in, yeah. in that vantage point, there, there are two that come to mind. Before the war, there's a case in uh, this tiny town called Gurdon, Arkansas. In the summer of 1941, there's a, a engineer battalion, uh, mostly men from. Detroit and Chicago, black men, who were down there training in these these war game exercises in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And they encountered uh, some of the the most hostile racist treatment one one can imagine. That they are, are stationed there uh, in this small town, and on the one night they're supposed to have recreation, they go into town and are in the kind of the two-block black area of town. But on their way back, they don't walk in the way that the white sheriffs want them to be walking. And so there's an altercation that happens, and they are threatened by the white sheriffs that if yeah. they don't get back to base, if they don't sort of keep to their spots, that they're going to, to get shot. The sheriffs then sort of proceed to make to, to find them on the road walking back to their to their camp, make them walk in a ditch that's full of water and, and venomous snakes um, all the way back to this army camp where they are. That night, the, the men are terrified because they're thinking, like, if if we stay in this town, like what's what's going to happen? They don't have ammunition. Exactly, um, yeah. No way to defend themselves. And so they decide to flee. Um, in the middle of the night, they go in a dozen different directions, hop on freight trains, and try to make their way back to, to their home base in, in Detroit. And so I give this as a, one example where things could have been worse because when they get back to Detroit, they're thankful to have one of the legal officials within the military as one of the first black lawyers who's able to hear their case. And then Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP are, is able to come and put additional pressure on the military to make sure that the men aren't uh, court-martialed out of, of the military. Mm-hmm. They aren't given dishonorable discharges. So he helps to, to shorten their sentences when it could have been when they could have been much longer. But it seems to me that this sort of thing might have happened all the time. I mean, all kinds of people could have, in, in terms of numbers, why would anybody put up with this when they could, in, in a sense, escape? No, but now, granted, now the military does track you down. But it, it yeah. does, you know, first of all, I'm always shocked that people volunteer, African Americans volunteer in the first place for a government that's treating them so badly. But then, you know, I'm not surprised, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there were a whole lot of people who tried to escape. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those kind of counterfactual questions that I often get is why, given everything that yeah, Black yeah. Americans were experiencing, why would anyone choose to serve? And before the draft starts, some number of Black Americans do volunteer, including after after Pearl Harbor, um, Black Americans volunteer and are actually turned away because the Army doesn't have enough Black units to accommodate them. And I think for, for that group who volunteered who was eager to fight, they were patriotic. Yeah. Like many yeah. of their, their white countrymen, they wanted to fight for their country. They might have had fathers or uncles who served in World War One. Once the draft starts, then the choice is not so dissimilar from Vietnam. It's either you serve or you risk potentially going to jail. There wasn't a, a go to Canada option that I'm aware of during, <laughs> yeah, well, during, yeah. during World War II. And there were thousands of black Americans who, who chose to go to jail rather than to serve in the military. And most famously, Bayard Rustin, uh, who becomes one of the architects of the 1963 March on Washington, he serves three years in a federal penitentiary rather than serve in World War II, rather than accept his draft status, because he's, he's a Quaker and a pacifist. He doesn't think any wars right, are, are good, right. but he's, he's particularly concerned about fighting for the United States, given 
sort of the Jim Crow racial policies of the time. And so that, that same question about why wouldn't more troops take this example from Arkansas and flee, it was possible to flee or to go AWOL, but then once you get caught by the military, then you <laughs> risk potentially being court-martialed and put in a military prison for a number of years, um, or at the very least, dishonorably discharged, which could uh, lead to a bunch of negative outcomes oh, uh, after, sure. after your service. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. And I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if someone actually quantitatively went through the, the punishments meted out to African-American soldiers that did this versus white soldiers and and found that African-American soldiers were punished much more harshly. But let me get to the end of the war. What happens when the soldiers come back, uh, African-American soldiers come back from fighting, and when war workers come back from the fact, leave the factories and go back into the regular economy? Is there, is there a, I, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, is there a sort of general jubilation? Oh, we've won this war, isn't this great how we all did this quote together, unquote? I think the end of the war is one of the times we can see most clearly how the war means something different for white Americans than for black Americans. Right. Because for white Americans, I mean, we've seen the images and and video clips and, and documentaries for for years and years now. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. For white Americans, it is a moment of celebration. It's a moment of, of celebration and relief that, thank God the war is over. We can come back and restart our families. We can sort of get back to the America that we, we know and love. The the common refrain, either in sort of direct quotations or in public polling for a lot of white Americans was they want to go back to the America that they left at the start of the war, America as it right, was. Right. For black Americans, that's the exact opposite of what they wanted. Sure. They sure. didn't want to return to a country that treated them as half American. And I think those visions for what post-war America were going to look like, they really came into conflict in 1945 and the years afterwards. In the war industries, a lot of the black workers who got those jobs were then pushed out of them because it was the the last hired, first fired kind of policies. Once white workers came back, then first black women were pushed out and then black men were, were pushed out. For black veterans who fought in the war, the kind of treatment they received when they, they came home was was horrendous. Yeah. And again, this was one of the really hard things to read about that we would like to think that veterans were universally lauded, but black veterans were not. It outside of outside of black communities. They uh, were subjects to extraordinary amounts of violence, that there were mm-hmm. a, a dozen black veterans who were murdered in the years immediately after the war um, or attacked, some while still wearing their, their military uniforms. Yeah. Which also happened after World War One. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it's part of what becomes clear is that for a lot of white Americans, the idea of black men and women being proud of their military service, wearing this uniform and what that meant for their, how they would carry themselves, particularly in the South, that they wouldn't get off the sidewalk to let a white person pass. They wouldn't defer in every social interaction to a white person. That was deeply worrisome and concerning to a lot of white Americans who were so invested in in that racial hierarchy. And then on on the policy side, the GI Bill was one of the most important pieces of legislation in the 20th century. It's what enabled a whole generation of of white veterans to enter the middle class because it provided access to uh, low-interest mortgages, to college tuition benefits, to job placement benefits. By and large, black Americans, black veterans weren't able to to benefit from those GI Bill benefits in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so that period immediately after the war uh, is one of really significant frustration for black, black veterans, but it's also a period of renewed commitment to, to fight for civil rights at home. Uh, one of the, the quotes from a, a veteran said, we went from fighting in the European theater of operations to fighting in the Southern theater of operations. Right. And so there's a whole generation, uh, people like Medgar Evers, W. Johnson Roundtree, who served in the military and then came home and immediately started fighting for for voting rights and for economic opportunities here in the United States for for Black Americans. Well, and then let me ask finally, how are those things again 
handled and presented by the two presses in the country. Because after all, we, you, we start off the book with, with the, the Pittsburgh Courier letter, and the press reports are very, very important. Again, I kind of know the answer to this, and that the white press is everything is celebratory. Explain the difference. Or first of all, is there a difference? And then what was the difference? Yeah, yeah it's a great question. There definitely was a difference. Let me start with the white press first. So by and large, it's very celebratory once right. the yeah. war is over. Um, there's this, the sense of relief and the sense of now America can go back to being the America it was before and can take on a, a larger leadership role in, in world affairs. And if we fast forward a few years, once the civil rights movement comes into national consciousness among a lot of white Americans with the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 and the, the sit-in protests years later. There's a sense of surprise almost that emerges in the white press. Right. That surprise is only possible because they weren't paying attention a decade earlier. Yeah. Right? The, the, the groundwork for the, all that civil rights activism from the 1950s happens during the war and the white press could have known about it if they would have known where to look and known who to ask. Right? In contrast, if you look at black newspapers from 1945-46, the war is not over. Yes, the military battles are over. Germany and Japan have been defeated. That part's over. But since they were fighting a double victory campaign, victory over fascism abroad, victory over racism at home, that second piece was still very much going yeah. on. And so the, the tenor of all of that coverage, if anything, it becomes even more heightened in 1945-46 because they recognize this second front of this battle, this home front part, has been going on for for generations and generations, and it's even more urgent that we finally secure actual freedom and democracy here at home now that the the military battles are over. Right. I think again, that's why I think it's so important as a set of historical sources is that all of the major black newspapers have their own war correspondents yeah. who have traveled yeah. to the European theater, Pacific theater, even to to China, India, and Burma, one of the kind of forgotten theaters of the war, and they're embedded with the black units and. In 1945, in, in the spring and summer, as the, the military battles are ending, these black war correspondents are already, by 1945, writing articles that praise the extraordinary work that black troops have done to help win the war, but also express real concern that yeah. they're already these efforts are already being written out of the history of the war. And those are such important perspectives to make sure that we, we understand today that when we talk about the history of World War II, we have to talk seriously about the perspectives of black Americans because it opens up a whole different whole different range of questions about what the war is about and it actually helps make sense of everything we're living with today like it, it's very hard to make sense of the ongoing battles over voting rights or battles over racial equality if we can't understand and reckon honestly with what actually happened during the war well and professor I can't imagine a better way for Americans to try to understand this than to read half American the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad, which is just out. And of course, as I said before, it's on the Buzzkill bookshelf. It's a great read. There's so much more in this book than, than what we've talked about today and so many more examples. And it's just absolutely a vital reading, vital reading. I will certainly assign it in class next semester. It just remains for me to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. And I'd love to have you back on to talk about uh, a lot of these people uh, making up some of our Man Crush Monday and Woman Crush Wednesday shows, but also about some of the other books you've written. So I hope that that's okay sometime in the future. That'd be wonderful. So thanks again. And we'll say to all the buzzkillers out there that we will talk to all of you next week.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.